In the United States, many recently decarcerated individuals struggle to find housing. The coronavirus pandemic forced a national conversation about this issue and highlighted how essential the right to housing is to prison abolition efforts. Welcome to the California Law Review podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing housing the decarcerated, COVID-19, abolition, and the right to housing, a piece by Fordham Law School professor Narinda Brown-Hyatt, published in Issue 3 of Volume 110 in June of 2022. Professor Hyatt, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your article. Thank you for having me. So to begin with, can you summarize your main argument in this piece? Sure. So I, I think what I was hoping to convey in the piece is that um, the coronavirus pandemic revealed um, <clears throat> something about two movements that we see happening in, in real time, kind of on parallel track with the pandemic itself. And that's the right to housing movement and the abolition movement. Um, and that these movements obviously predate the pandemic, but that they the light was shown on just how um, important it is to advance these movements separately through the pandemic, but also that their interconnectedness, I think, was uh, made more apparent um, during the pandemic. And you just, you know, you touched on this a bit in your answer, but what was it specifically that motivated you to write this article? Before the pandemic, I had been thinking about what I call in the article, um, the culture of exclusion in public and subsidized housing. That is that policies, a set of policies are really designed to keep as many people from benefiting from public and subsidized housing as possible. Um, and I should say here that most major cities have wait lists of thousands and thousands, like 11,000, 16,000 uh, people on the wait list. So demonstrating how much need there is, but you know, the scarcity of the, the resource, the scarcity of the voucher. And so um, those are people who allegedly qualify that, that wait list, those wait lists are filled with people who allegedly qualify. There's this whole other group of people that are really disappeared by in, in the program's analysis by this culture of exclusion. And I would say number at the top of the list are the decarcerated, the recently decarcerated, right? Um, so I've been thinking about this before the pandemic and what to do about the culture of exclusion uh, and again, the pandemic only just as I saw um, some states open up jails and, and you know, we, we saw some regression on this, I should say. But at the height, at the start of the pandemic, there was a, a decarceration movement inside the movement. And um, I thought, where do these folks go? Where do these folks go? Yeah, we did an, an episode earlier this year on this podcast that touched on the unique dangers COVID-19 presents to the incarcerated. And you note in your article that many recently decarcerated, decarcerated persons face similar risks from COVID-19 once they become decarcerated because the risk of the pandemic uh, presents to people who are living on the streets 
and the high rate of recently decarcerated folks who are unhoused. Could you outline why the COVID-19 pandemic still presents such a threat to folks once they become decarcerated? I think what we found at the start especially was you need to distance yourself. Sometimes you need to stay inside and we could talk more about that. Um, you need to wash your hands, you need to wash your mask, you need to, you know, at, at one point, you know, and we're, we've moved past this, but it's like, wash your groceries. Like all these things that you needed to do to allegedly stay safe, and some of them we still are still, I think that's practices in, in many parts of the country, um, you just can't do when you're on the street. So I, I think this is for the same reasons that we had lockdown and quarantines in the first place, which is to keep people separate, to keep people you know, in their homes and also to keep them clean, right? To keep things as clean as possible. Those, those goals are made more difficult when they're living on the street. And so being on the street, you get, you, you get sick, but then you have nowhere to get well and you also expose all the other people who are on the street because you have no way to quarantine yourself while you get well. As a follow-up, why are recently decarcerated folks more likely to be unhoused? This goes to a concept that I talk about in the article, which is about capital, both economic and social capital. Um, when the decarcerated, the recently decarcerated in particular, and so by that I mean folks like days out, hours out, days out, weeks out, you know, up to a year or two out, right? I think things, if you can stay out, there's research that suggests that if you can stay out beyond the first couple of years and the situation may change, right? Um, things may get better for you. But this folks hours, if you can imagine being hours or days out, and, and especially if you've been in for a long time, you're, you, you're light or just have none, have no social capital uh, or, or economic capital, right? And, in, and by social capital, we mean connections to people, depending on how long you've been there, your connections to your community, to your family members, people have died, people have moved, people have passed away, people aren't speaking to you, they've just forgotten about you at some level. Um, they, they've moved on with their life and, and now you're trying to patch that together. Um, those social networks are important to create a place to wash up, lay your head, you know, kind of get mail, have an address to put on an application. These things help you get economic capital, which is like access to education, importantly, access to employment. And employment is just really critical to housing. Um, yeah. So being without those things, without the social capital and the e and or the economic capital, then you're on the street. You have nowhere to go. Your article identifies an important connection between the prison abolition movement and the right to, right to housing movement. What are these two movements and what do they seek to achieve? So I think at the most simple level, abolition, and by this part, I mean the negative part of, well, I mean, maybe even both, but let's just start with the negative concept of abolition, which is the drawing down of numbers down to zero in prisons and jails. Um, that concept of ending the carceral state as we know it now. Um, 
what I just, this is connected to the, in my answer to the let your last question, which is if people are on the street, have no place to, to lay their heads, have no food, have no opportunity for work, then they recidivate. If we want to keep the numbers down to zero, we need to create a space where people can come out and be successful. And there are studies that suggest that it's not dangerousness that sends people back to jail, it's lack of resources. And so housing, a right to housing for everyone, regardless of whether they have had criminal interactions with the criminal justice or the criminal legal system, not justice system, criminal legal system, then is really important to keep, to, to really truly in the wheel this hamster wheel of sending people out and in and back in and out uh, of prison and jail. Like, so a future that does not have that process would suggest that it's a future that provides resources where people have, among other things, housing. Sometimes people say, well, why, you know, why should the housing movement care? But I think people who are in the right to housing movement, which is believing that every human being deserves to be housed and housed in a way that is clean and safe and allows them to be prosperous. And um, jail is not that. Right? Jail is a cage. It's, it's, you know, some people will say for animals, but not even, right? Um, in many cities, in many places, animals are treated better than people in jail. So that's not house, that's not housing for any human or any even animal and, you know, some concepts of, of what is um, right. And so I think the right, those who are committed to the right to housing movement have to recognize that 2 million people are in cages, not houses. And if we believe that all humans on this earth deserve safe housing, then that means that these folks that are actually in jails in prisons, living in cages, also deserve housing. And so the people in the right to housing movement should be joined up with the people in the abolition movement and ask for those cages to be opened. Could you outline how federal and state subsidized housing programs work and how they might support the recently decarcerated? Sure, so I was thinking, no one, I, I don't know anyone, maybe Secretary Fudge could say, she knows how the, all these programs work, right? There, there are so many, um, state and federal housing programs, I, I don't want to suggest that they all work the same or we even have time to go into them one by one now. I want to share, though, like a broad concept about them, which is that those who would be housing burdened, and that means that you would spend more than 30% of your income on housing and thus that you have not enough resources for food and clothes and other things, books and childcare that you need, transportation, that the government would come in and subsidize that housing down to a point where you will only pay 30% of your income for housing, right? So if you make $1,000 a month, the government would say you pay $300 towards um, your own housing and we will pay um, whatever above $300 your housing costs in this area. So if market rent is going to mean that it would be $1,500 for you to get a two bedroom for, you know, this person and 
her children, let's say, then the government would pay $1,200 and the voucher holder would pay her $300 share so that she has $700 of the rest of her earnings to take care of her other basic needs. And so most of the programs kind of use the formula become complicated and where you live determines, you know, certain aspects of the formula um, based on how expensive the market is. But that basic 30% of your income, like trying not to make trying to make sure that people are not rent burdened and paying more than 30% of their income in rent is a basic premise that most all of the programs share and, and what's really important for this paper. I think another part of it is that there are rules in order for the government to step in here, both you have to be eligible for the program and that means, you know, they're like good citizenship uh, standards for which the government says you must meet in order to qualify to be part of the program. And those standards include not having a recent record. And how recent depends on which jurisdiction you are in. You can be in very similarly situated places like Oakland and Berkeley and, and, and have a different, um, you know, standard for how recently you can't have had any touches. And I think it's important to note that it's it's now brought into touches with the carceral state. You don't, it's not just uh, convictions um, that can result in you being excluded or not qualified to get this assistance from the government, but that even being stopped or arrested and let go and found um, not to have actually violated the law at all, could result in you not being eligible. And also children's behaviors in schools can be attributed to their parents and other family members and make the whole family ineligible. So those are some of the contours, again, that are relevant, I think, for this discussion. There are pages and pages of regulations on this. The final thing I would say is that getting, once you're inside public and subsidized housing, or what people commonly call Section 8, you have to work really hard to stay there. Um, and that means you have to follow all types of rules that are set out by uh, the local housing authority who manages these programs and the federal government and state governments, including that you also not have touches with the carceral state and that no one you know has touches with the carceral state. This web is really big, that no one that would come visit you or has visited you, even if they have touches nowhere near your home have touches with the carceral estate. Or else you could be removed from your current housing. Yeah, so what you're describing and what your what your article describes is this culture of exclusion that, that prevents recently decarcerated individuals from accessing housing and of course by extension that social and economic capital. And with that last point that you made, could you could you tell us a little bit more about the story of uh, Rucker, the Supreme Court decision, and, and how that solidified the Clinton administration's extreme subsidized housing laws. Right, right, right. So I think Rucker is important, and, and by Rucker we mean uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development v. Rucker, um, which was a case where the Oakland Housing Authority um, 
initiated separate actions in municipal court. So, you know, regular landlord tenant court to evict four tenants, um, black elderly folks, one fairly ill, um, and their names were Pearlie Rucker, who's, you know, now famous for being the, the lead plaintiff or at defendant plaintiff, depending on the different postures of the case that um, went forward, Willie Lee, Barbara Hill, and Herman Walker. And what's important about these four individuals is that the agency, the Housing Authority, acknowledged, admitted that they, from the very beginning, that they were all, quote, innocent themselves of any criminal wrongdoing. Nonetheless, the Rutgers tenants were each accused of violating their lease. And this goes back to the answer to the last question, which was how um, why this net is. Willie, um, you know, was being um, targeted because of his grandson's um, allegedly illegal drug activity. Um, I think Herman Walker's case is really important because it was his caregiver. This is the person who was fairly ill and had a caregiver and the caregiver was found with drugs. Um, and so you have the sick elderly person whose caregiver is, you know, you know, doesn't live there, but is found to have uh, illicit drugs and, and um, he was being moved to be evicted um, um, as a result of that. So what, what happens is there's a question from these folks about like whether if you're innocent, if you're, no one disbelieves that you're innocent. No one thinks you actually were involved in illegal activity or even knew, had knowledge of this illegal activity that is alleged, but that if you're innocent, could you really be evicted from public housing? And so we have to realize, right, the point, the people who have public and subsidized housing vouchers are deeply impoverished. And so you have now like elderly, some disabled, some sick folks who are deeply impoverished being um, evicted from their housing for activity that was engaged in by third parties that they didn't know of, that they had no knowledge of. And the question was, could this really be what Congress intended? And after much back and forth, going to the district court, to the Ninth Circuit twice, once on bonk, and then up to the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Rehnquist writing for um, the majority says, yes, this is what Congress intended in that um, there is no innocent tenant defense. So that even um, if you don't know, so what that means, I mean, you know, there's lots written about the innocent tenant defense. How is it that we are evicting all these innocent people? And I am concerned about that, make no mistake. I think we should be worried, but there's this this paper calls for us to think beyond innocent to a group of people who have allegedly paid their debt to society right when they are decarcerated and are very vulnerable and if we want them to succeed in staying out um need housing to to do so and then beyond that we have to look to the work michelle alexander offered us in the new jim crow um, and knowing that so many people haven't really violated laws at all, but are inside, like they're innocent, right? 
like this notion of who's innocent, I think is one we should question who and almost turn it on its head and say, I don't, I don't think approach it this way in the paper, but since I've thought like, who's guilty, who's guilty and who's guilty of what that they don't deserve housing. Yeah. I think that case is a really good example of, of why, as you mentioned in your article, innocence is, is a fiction created by a caste system. And so just to, to kind of dig in there a little deeper, could you uh, continue to explain why innocence shouldn't determine who deserves housing? Well, you know, the example that people, I think, can most um, easily grasp right now is what's happening with marijuana. And how we're, you know, marijuana is being decriminalized throughout the country to various degrees, varying degrees. But we're on a we're on a march towards decriminalizing marijuana use. But there's so many people who are in jail and prison for various activities involving marijuana. And let's say those people, and there's a there's a racial component to this that other scholars have written about, and in which I won't get into only to say similar to crack and cocaine, but maybe even with like, you know, even less disparities, America's using marijuana. And there are only a certain group of people who happen to be black and brown that are, are jailed and criminalized for using marijuana. Um, so that's when we think about innocence and guilt, like both as fictions, you could be engaged in the same activities in America, and then some people have a record that's criminal that could keep them and their families from having housing that they need um, as a result. And some people go along with their already well-to-do lives without any, um, you know, any access to any of uh, their resources being hampered. And so it's not activity that we really criminalize so much as it is type or race of the person who engages in that activity. And once we know that, um, you know, and it can acknowledge that really deeply, you know, um, again, Alexander's work, but so, so many others, um, Paul Butler's work in this respect, um, even some of the work that James Foreman has done in trying to um, raise these issues, um, Angela Davis, those those, that work lets us know that um, if many of the people who are incarcerated were not black and brown, they wouldn't be in jail in the first place. So to continue the consequences is bad enough. They've been jailed, they've been imprisoned, but to continue um, to have these collateral consequences, including denying them access to public housing. And I, I just want to take a moment here to say that what the paper really, really suggests is that people be allowed to go home to their kin networks that may already be subsidized. So there's one strand of the argument, which is say we could give subsidies and there are programs that have given subsidies to directly to the recently decarcerated and those have had really strong impacts on the success of folks coming out. But there's something else, which is that if we go back to social capital, that so many people coming out may still have um, contacts, kin networks that have already a voucher. And so they could go into homes that are already being subsidized if the rules were different. Your article discusses how 
federal housing assistance during the COVID-19 pandemic created, in effect, a right to housing. Um, if we saw this extended, as you, as you suggest, what might a world where an individual's connections to the carceral system do not bear on their ability to be housed look like? Um, I think that we saw many experiments, social experiments in the, um, you know, so some bright spots in the pandemic were these social experiments, including if there was a um, halting on an eviction, so the eviction moratoria that were enacted states did them separately, and then the federal government came in and, and engaged in a rent moratorium, which was huge, right? What is it like to not evict people? And also, why do we not need to worry about landlords when we're stopping the eviction process because the CARES Act came in with money that paid their rent when they could not? And so I think this goes back to our earlier, the earlier part of our conversation. We were talking about how long the wait lists are. There's the scarcity model that we don't have enough resources to house all the people who need our help. And what does that say about America? But what the CARES Act did um, is show us that maybe we do have the resources, that maybe we do. And this wasn't just for the deeply impoverished, right? Maybe we have even more resources than we thought because that money wasn't just for the deeply impoverished. It was for people who are on, you know, have fallen on hard times and need help right now. That is what the system could and should look like at the very least, right? I'm sure there are other components that if we got there, we could think, yeah, there's, we could do better, but it would be a huge, a tremendous step if we could um, keep you know, meeting people where they legitimately are. And, you know, for those who don't know about the program, folks have to do a lot to demonstrate need. You don't just walk in, say, I'm needy, which could be okay with me too, um, because um, people who aren't needy um, often don't go through these kind of processes. But that's, it's not simple at all. The application is very complex. The proofs are you know, um, that have to be given are significant. So these folks really do have so little income and have, you know, very high housing costs. Before we wrap up, I wanted to see if there's anything specific that you might like to add. Yeah, you know, I think we one thing that is important is that abolition itself is uh, maybe um, controversial term and um, we haven't talked, you know, maybe as much about, and, and the controversial part oftentimes is drawing down the numbers. I think we need to talk also about the impact that abolition could have on not sending as many people the positive Part of abolition, which is like building resources into communities so that people don't go to prison in the first place. And so when we think about the future, um, beyond even just the CARES Act money or, or money from the government that could help subsidize housing, um, so that's like on the right to housing side, on the abolition side, we should be thinking there are programs that could be in place, including 
the subsidizing of housing, but others, right? Education programs, better educational systems, important, you know, in our inner cities, um, in in particular, but not just in our rural or exurbs, like just better education generally would prevent so many people from turning to um, what might be deemed as illegal behavior, right? And so it's 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 um, the case that by positive at doing the work of positive abolition, which is building structures, we reduce dangerousness before it even starts. We d- we reduce the cycle of crime. Whatever folks are worried about in terms of criminality, that these programs have been shown through study after study to reduce um, the likelihood of crime occurring in the first place and makes us all just appreciably, um, I hate to use the word safer, but I just want to say more more productive, live more fruitful. Um, it makes society just in general um, more supportive for all. Professor Hyatt, thank you so much for joining us and for discussing your article. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Hyatt's article, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 3 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. See you in the next episode.